a little rowdier over in Children's Church here than they were last week. We will get that new furnace and AC installed in the mod, uh, <clears throat> hopefully. And, and if you need to move this way, folks, feel free. You're not going to offend anybody. There's some open seats. We are entering into an, a learning from chapters 6 and 7 from the book of Judges. You probably best know this section of Scripture as the time when God delivers his people from uh, the, uh, pe- uh, the surrounding peoples that were enslaving them called the Midianites, and he delivers them through a judge named Gideon. And you'll, as we move through this, you'll, you know, maybe we'll get to the final stage of it, and you'll say, oh, torches under clay pots, and they break the clay pots, and and this army is routed by 300 men. And that's where we're going here. But, but what I want you to see through this is that God uses weakened warriors. He uses weakened warriors. And I don't mean by that W-E-E-K, weakened warriors. In fact, that's our mentality. That's the mentality we grow up with. We grow up with God in a box. And we grow up with the idea and we tend toward, we slide into this incorrect idea that God is about weekend warriors, W-E-E-K, weekend warriors. Maybe not even the weekend, maybe just Sunday, maybe just Sunday morning, maybe just those few hours that we spend sitting under his word, worshiping him. We, we, we tend to have this idea that God is in this box, this compartment, and as long as we make him happy there, or as long as we keep him there, then our life can be what we want it to be. And he's just this, this object orbiting around us. The fact is that, that God doesn't use weekend warriors, W-E-E-K. He uses weakened warriors, W-E-A-K. We're looking at weak warriors, but mighty God. And we're looking at the fact that even that God desires weak warriors. He uses weak warriors. Possibly one of his top qualities is weak warriors. I love the statement that says, God's not so concerned about your, any of your abilities except for your availability. And when it comes to warriors that God uses, weakness is actually one of the top qualities. In the context that we are here and we see this in, in the book of Judges, is that Israel is under devastating domination by the surrounding people groups. And this is a, a consistent theme through the book of Judges. And you want, if you want a good understanding of the book of Judges, because there, there's some really weird things going on, especially at the end of book, the book of Judges that shows the full downward spiral of God's people Israel during that time period. If you want a good understanding, write this down, BibleProject.org. Or you can go to YouTube and type in, Read Scripture Judges. And, and if you do that, you will get to watch a like seven-minute video that will explain all of the book of Judges to you, and, and which we aren't looking at through this series. As I said, we're just looking at Judges 6 through 7. But telling you that makes me feel better that I don't have to explain the whole book of Judges to you. But God will actually explain here in these chapters, that he gets more glory from weak warriors. He will get more glory from Israel being delivered by a few weak men. He will actually say, he will actually tell Gideon, after raising him up, as he says, I'm the smallest of the smallest tribe. 
Why would you want me? And he'll actually narrow down Gideon's army to 300 people. And he explains that the reason for doing that is he's doing that lest Israel should say, by my own hand was I delivered from the people of Midian. Rather than giving all the glory to God. So God uses weak warriors so that he gets all the glory. This is a a New Testament concept as well. Where the Apostle Paul, probably the most influential, uh, powerful, and, and, and useful men of the first century, used by God, says in 2 Corinthians 12, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, when I am weak, then Christ can work. And Christ gets the glory. We'll actually see that Israel's weaknesses are the result of their lifestyle, a result of their turning away from God. And we, we peek into this cycle, and I'll explain what I mean by that, of Israel's relationship with God in Judges 6, beginning in verse 1, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens uh, that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And let me explain to you that you can can see this in Judges 2 where it lays out what was the cycle. They call it the cycle of the judges, the cycle that Israel was going through during this point in time in their relationship with God as his privileged people, that they would be kind of riding high, And then they would turn away from the Lord. They would walk away from the Lord and they would start to go to the gods and the idolatry of the peoples around them uh, to get their needs met. And they would walk away from the Lord and they would end up in a relationship of servitude and slavery to those people. And God warned them that this was going to happen if they should walk away from him. And then eventually they would cry out to God for help and for, re, uh, for salvation, physical salvation from these people. And God would send a special person uh, that he would call a judge. And it's not a judge as we understand it today, but it was someone that would bring his justice to the situation. And he would help them in their process of repentance to, to throw off the domination of the people that they were under. And sadly, as that judge would die, or sometimes even as that judge still lived, they would start spiraling downward again and walking away from the Lord. And it's a sad cycle that we see in the book of Judges. And so we see them in this seven years drought, if you will, of God's provision and protection. And it says in this specific situation of of domination, in verse 3 it says, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. 
They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet from the, to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And and these verses here give us a good opportunity to kind of look at where this passage falls into the history of Israel as God's people. Okay, because at one point in time, God had no privileged people. God had no individuals that would say, we are God's children. And, but during the life of Abraham in Genesis 12, God showed up and made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to him that I am going to make you into a great nation, and this nation is going to be my people. And those who bless them, I will bless, and those who curse them, I will curse. And I'm going to give you a land, the land that, that you move into, which... present day Israel occupies part of that land he says I am going to give this to you I promise this land to you and 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 Abraham had two sons Ishmael and Jacob and though Ishmael was born before Jacob uh, Jacob I'm sorry not Jacob Isaac Isaac was God's promised son the promise was going to come through Isaac Isaac had two sons Esau and Jacob and though again uh Custom would have had it that Esau would be the privileged son. God's blessing would pass on to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. I'm not going to list them off to you because I don't know them off the top of my head. But he had, they have 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. As a part of, and here we are in like the, the last quarter of the book of, of Genesis, Joseph ends up down in Egypt. God uses Joseph's being down in Egypt, one of Jacob's son, to bring all of Jacob and his children and his descendants and his, 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 uh, all, all of his sons and their kids down to Egypt. And Scripture says, and there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt that, that uh, enslaved the nation of Israel, those 12 uh, sons and their descendants and and. and as was foretold to Abraham, that they would be down there and they would be in slavery for 400 years. And that's like an incubator for the people of Israel. They become a people of three million. And God uses Moses to deliver them from Egypt, which is talked about in our passage, and to lead them out of Egypt and lead them through the wilderness over the course of 40 years back into the promised land. And and all of the the generation that was delivered out of Egypt has passed away, and it's a new generation. Moses passes away before they enter into the promised land, and they're following Joshua into the promised land. 
And God tells them that I'm going to drive out the people from among you. And he tells them through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you shall do what... And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. But in Joshua 24, as Joshua is coming to the end of his leadership with them and coming to the end of his life, he tells them, choose you this day. Maybe you've heard this verse. Choose you this day who you're going to serve. He says, as for my house, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They say, we'll serve the Lord too. He says in verse 22 and 25 in Joshua 24, then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And that brings us to the book of Judges. They're living in the land. They haven't driven out all the peoples that that lived among them with their foreign gods. These these idols and this, this worship that they were warned, don't participate in this. We'll explain why that was so devastating if they were to and when they did. And Judges 2, verse 10 tells us, And all that generation, Joshua and all of his generation, also were gathered to their fathers, meaning they passed away, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And that's what began the cycle of them walking away from the Lord and he raising up a deliverer a judge, to deliver them, them walking away from the Lord again. So why does he say in these verses that he says, he recounts back to them what he said, I said to you, I am the Lord your God, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why fear an idol? Why fear a statue? Why fear something made out of wood or stone? God asks them this over and over again in the Old Testament. He tells them over and over again in the Old Testament, don't worry about the God of this river. Don't worry about the God of this mountain. Don't worry about the God of this land. I'm the God of the whole earth, he says. Jeremiah 10, verse 5, he says, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. I think that there's a present-day acronym that can pretty well explain why people would be afraid of idols. And I think we're still have, we still listen to fears that lead us away from a relationship of trust and obedience to God, and we still walk into idolatry. I believe every temptation is still a temptation of idolatry. So, so the present-day acronym that can kind of explain the fear of idolatry is FOMO. 
Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't. FOMO stands for fear of missing out, okay? When your, your child or your grandchild walks into the house, like, hey, why did you call me? Our friends are doing this. I got to get back out there. They have FOMO. They have a fear that they're missing out on something. And, and we all have needs, and with those needs come fears that those needs are not going to be met Needs for intimacy, needs for adventure, needs to be an success, need for affirmation, need for acknowledgement. And you see, every idol promises to meet one of those needs. Every temptation promises to meet one of those needs. Just step outside of a relationship of trust and obedience to God. And you'll get that intimacy. You'll get that success. You'll get that admiration. It's a fear of missing out. Idolatry flows out of a fear of not having our needs met. A fear of being without what we need leads to idolatry. And whatever it is we think will meet our need, that becomes a quote-unquote idol to us if we serve it. Idolatry can be looking for something besides God, besides his plan for meeting our needs. So when they say, don't fear these gods, he's talking about don't be afraid of not having what you think they're going to provide. Don't give in to FOMO. Fear of missing out on what this idol says. Hey, just come over here. Just do what we're doing. Just chase after it here. This better helps, it helps us better to understand a, a common thing that I hear from people more as often as anything else is, I don't understand the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear of the Lord? Apply FOMO back to him. The fear of the Lord is a fear of missing out. A fear of missing out of all that he has for you. Of what it looks like for him to provide. For him to show up in his timing, in his way. Most likely it's not going to look like what you think it should look like. A fear of the Lord is a fear of missing out of what it means to walk in a close relationship with him. Of having his provision. And when we walk away from a relationship with God, we miss out. We're talking about what to expect when walking away from God. You see, a temptation to sin, I believe, is always a temptation to idolatry. It's always a temptation to get that need met somewhere else, outside of a relationship of trust and obedience. Goes back to the garden. You surely will not die. You can get this and still have all you have. We're always either walking toward God or away from him. Walking toward him is walking in relationship, relying on his perfect plan, relying for him to meet our needs. We, we, in, uh, on the most fundamental level, we rely on him to meet our need for salvation, rely on him to meet our need for relationship with him in the first place. Every false religion is based on the idea of a lie of saying, meet your eternal needs, meet your ultimate needs, meet your need for a relationship with God through this. 
And on the most fundamental level, we begin a relationship with God saying, I have nothing that I can draw off of in order to have a relationship with God, with you. In fact, the only thing that I have that's of value to have a relationship with God is my sins because Christ came into the world to save sinners, and that means I'm qualified. But thank God that Christ took all of our sins and took them on himself, taking the penalty of our sins on himself and paid for those, making his righteousness available to us if we would make that exchange. Yeah, you paid for my sins, and I need your righteousness, and I want a relationship with God through Christ. Please give it to me. And walking toward God is walking in that relationship. Walking away is seeking to meet our needs outside of relationship, of trust and obedience to him. So what to expect when walking away from God? Expect discipline from your heavenly father. And we're going to better understand discipline here because that doesn't sit well with us. Because we've got this other picture of discipline, of like angry punishment. And that's not what discipline is. Discipline is training. I'm getting ahead of myself. It says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Makes me think of the relation or, or of the situation described in Romans one, where it talks about how na- nations of people would fall away from God, and saying, talking about how. Uh, being unwilling to acknowledge God, being unwilling to give him glory for being God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts. He gave them over to, to um, an inability to acknowledge him as God anymore. These dens and caves that they make for themselves, that the author is saying, you know those dens, those caves, those strongholds? That's when they were built. When the Midianites were coming to invade, when this was a regular thing, these were not summer cottages. These were more like tornado shelters. They were like, they're coming. Everybody run inside and lock the door. They were safe houses against these swift raiding bands of thieves. These, it describes in the, in the later verses, it talks about how um, they covered the land. That m- their men and their camels could not even be counted. The Midianites were a nomadic tribe. They were actually descendants from Abraham and his handmaid Keturah, which kind of shows you why having more than a wife does not work here. And so they, would, they had organized other people from the east, so other side of the Jordan, to swing in. And they were one of the first people groups that, that utilized camels to swing in, that they could travel over 100 miles in a day. So these guys would get up and look out, everything's good, okay, everything, you know, start harvesting the grain. And that night they could be there from 100 miles away, set up camp, and they're like, hey, what are, you know, is this a cookout? <coughs> and so <coughs> it says the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites. And understand that we should expect discipline from your heavenly father when walking away from the Lord. And understand that the biblical idea of discipline is training. That's why the term discipline and disciple are so similar to each other. It's to be trained. 
Uh, Hebrews two, uh, 12 tells us, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this is a proverb that he quotes, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline or trains? And verse 11 of Hebrews 12 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I had this image in my mind whenever um, Hannah's fiance, Brayden, you know Brayden, um, comes over and they bring uh, Brayden's dog, Ivy. Ivy goes tearing through the yard and and she's twice as fast as Sochi and our dog. And Sochi just runs next to her, barking at her the whole time. And I thought, yesterday I said, I think Sochi thinks she's training Ivy. You know, she's like Mickey from Rocky standing, come on, Ivy, push it. You can go faster. So she just barks at her the whole time, running next to her. When God is disciplining us, it's not a punishment out of anger that we might have a picture from our experience, maybe. It's like, Ro- it's like Mickey from Rocky. Come on. You can, you can walk more closely with me than this. You don't have to have this. You don't have to depend on this. You don't have to lean on this. You don't have to go there to meet your needs. As the Apostle Paul tells his, his, his uh, the one he mentors, Titus, in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting till we finally get strong again, waiting till we're not weak anymore, waiting till we can rely on our flesh? No. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Obeying God brings life. Sinful practices bring death. Death to relationships, sometimes physical death. You see, God cannot both love his children and sit back and watch them ruin their lives. As one writer says, God is not a permissive parent who allows his children to do as they please for his ultimate purpose is that they might be conformed to the image of his son we're called told in Romans 8. See, we should be grateful for his training and his discipline. And we should challenge one another as believers to live in relationship of trust and obedience with him. For the unsaved world, we should ache and pray for them. Maybe that what they're going to to meet their needs wouldn't work any longer. So moving forward in Judges 6, we, I, I, I want to make a side note here, okay? What is the big deal with idolatry? Because we're, we're going to better understand, it's going to give us a better understanding of what's going on in the next verses here. Like I said, it begins with a fear of an unmet need, a need that we cannot meet in and of ourselves. A- and idolatry in itself 
is, is if this were an idol, uh, if this was an altar of biblical worship, we've been given what we've been given, our energy, our money, our time, our efforts, our creativity, we've been given it all to worship God with as an offering of worship to him. But we're constantly finding ourselves living in relationship rather than living, serving the Lord, serving ourselves with our life. And it's like we're standing in front of a vending machine. And in that situation, when we're serving ourselves, we're taking what we've been given to worship God with and we're plugging it into the idol or we're plugging it into the vending machine to get our needs met from whatever it is that we think is going to meet those needs. And, and that's the best illustration. Been ever here at Harvest for a while. You've heard it plenty of times. Uh, it's the best illustration to me of what idolatry is today. And God told his people in First Chron- Chronicles 16, all of the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord, he made the heavens. You're plugging in what belongs to worship me that, that will, will allow you to bear my image before the people as you're created to do. You're plugging it into something worthless. It's not worth anything. And the psalmist says in Psalm 31, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And Jeremiah said these sad words in Jeremiah 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? See what happens to the nation of Israel in chapter 6 of Judges it says for whenever the Israelites planted crops the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land and, af- and as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock and their tents they'd set up camp and they would come like locusts in number Both they and their camels could not be counted so that the land laid waste. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. All those fat feet of these camels running across the land. And they came at harvest time. They trample what crops they didn't eat. There were too many to count like locusts covering the land, eating everything and moving on. They were like pirates before it was cool. Just this band of peoples united together for pillaging. Israel was like the worst scene in a Western movie where the outlaws were ruling the land. And what should we expect when walking away from God? Expect devastation from our sinful pursuits. Here's how it worked for the nation of Israel with the temptation to idolatry of the people that they lived among, okay? In order to guarantee their success in the future, they needed good produce. They needed their wives 
to produce good, healthy children. They needed their livestock to produce good, healthy offspring. They needed their crops to produce a good, healthy crop. And, and, and the people of, of the area said, hey, we got just what you need. We got what we call fertility cults. You see, you come here and you visit the temple. And the way that you worship was you would go and visit a temple prostitute. That's how you'd make your offering. And what, you, what we offer you is that you're going to get fertility. Fertility for the wombs of your wives. Fertility for your crops. Fertility for your livestock. We're going to take care of your need. And it'd be so whacked, okay, that a wife would say to her husband, we need good, healthy children because I'm tired of doing all these chores, right? So she'd say, you need to go visit the temple prostitute to ensure that we can have good, healthy children. What do you think that does for a marriage? Do you see the devastation that that would bring to relationships? Do you see the irony here of what's going on? They're walking away from the Lord, investing themselves in these fertility cults to get the meeting of their needs and what is happening in the end. They end up with no harvest, no livestock. I don't know if they roll it off with their kids or what, but they end up more devastation as a result than what they were, any bit that they were promised by this idolatry. Expect devastation from sinful pursuits. Charles Spurgeon said, the Lord does not permit his children to sin successfully because he loves us. He loves us too much. You ever heard the, the proverb, beware of allowing the nose of the camel under your tent? It's because eventually you're going to have the whole camel in your tent. And, and I'm sure it was just like, would you, you know, the, the rain hasn't been right, and, you know, I didn't have good seed from last season, and I'm really concerned about our crops this year. Maybe I just need to ensure it. I'll, maybe I'll just go visit the fertility cult and just kind of, wouldn't hurt to have a little extra blessing, right, on our crops this year. And this is where it takes them. No harvest, no livestock. It's the very thing that they were trying to ensure. This is what's going on for the Samaritan woman when Jesus sits down with her. And, he try, and, he's, and he's pointing out for her the idol that she's chasing after. And he lovingly says, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five of them. And the one you're living with now, you're not married to. He was pointing out lovingly the idolatry of her heart and where she was going to try to get her needs met. And we've all seen what this does. Somebody just feeling, ending up feeling used and abused. Because people oftentimes look for security in something like that, a sexual relationship, and they end up ruining their ability to relate. They end up feeling used and feeling abused 
People look for intimacy in pornography, and they end up ruining their ability to love. And that's what they went to get in the first place, quote-unquote love. People look for adventure from taking risks, from, from skimming a little bit off the top, and they ruin their ability to be employed and to make money. They look for, for independence and rebellion, and they end up ruining their trust and losing their freedom. They end up looking for a control of their feelings, being amped up on adrenaline and chemicals, and they end up ruining their independence, losing their license or locked away. People look up, end up looking for success, and they say, I'm going to pour everything into that, whether it be a sport or, or that, the, uh, my academics. And I'm not going to have time for anything else. And they can end up losing it all just because they didn't pass that test or they didn't make that team. See, temptation is always a bait and switch. It's always saying, look, if you just add this, if you just step outside of trusting and obeying God to get this, you'll have everything you need. But when you step outside to get it, you just end up losing more than you gained, losing more than you had in the first place. And it becomes, well, you're going to have to do more. You're going to have to do more. And then the guilt sets in, the shame sets in. And, and then the next thing is you can't go back. God's not going to listen to you. But when walking, what to expect when walking away from God? Expect God's response to your repentant cries. We see that here. It says, Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And understand, this crying out to the Lord, this was a very half-hearted repentance. <clears throat> it's likened to what Hosea says in Hosea 7.14. They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. See, repentance from a broken, contrite heart is hard to come by. It, it comes from a godly sorrow. As we're told about in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Where it's like, you know what? I'm actually grateful for what God used to get me there. But that verse continues, it says, whereas worldly grief just produces death. We have this tendency when we're under God's discipline, when God's training us, to blame God. Hey, God, it's supposed to be that, that you work everything out for good for those who love you and for those who are called according to your purpose. I have a relationship with you through Christ. The Holy Spirit is, is indwelling me. I have, a re I, I, I have this relationship with you. And where's this good you're talking about? Or forget the good that he promises there in Romans 8 is being conformed to the image of his son. That's God's definition of good. And this idea of blaming God, of thinking, where is God? This is where we find Gideon. This is where we'll find him next week. When the angel of the Lord shows up and says, I'm going to deliver Israel through you, he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, or he, at this point he says, the Lord is with, uh, with you. 
is if the Lord is with us, Gideon says, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Do not, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of, the Midi- of Midian. But what we'll see in verse 34 is Gideon turns a different corner when he's clothed with God's Spirit. Much like what we've just been in talking about lately. Walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. The strength is not in us. It's not in our flesh. The strength comes from God's Spirit. Makes me think of the little boy that was playing in the dirt one day and he and he and his dad were walking out and working out in, in uh, the back 40 of their property, and they were kind of taking, taking more of the, the property in as, as yard and stuff. I don't know why they would, because then you've got to mow it and all that. But, and uh, so the boy's working on this rock, and that he thought it was just a little rock, and he dug the dirt out around it. It's a bigger rock than he thought, and he finally got uh, you know, to where he could get uh, a grip on the underside of this rock. And this turn, rock turns out to be so much bigger than he thought it was going to be. And so he's just on there tugging and tugging and tugging, and, he, and his dad is watching him. And he finally just collapses, crying. He says, I can't do it. It's impossible. His dad says, it's not impossible. Well, why don't you ask for me for help? He says, will you help me, Dad? And sure, and he goes and gets a pry bar, and they get that rock out together. They pop it up out of the ground. I want you to know we have a bolder moving God. Even the boulders that we put there. And he responds to repentant cries for help. It's what he describes in 1 Corinthians 4 talking about how anyone comes to Christ for salvation. It says, but the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown his light into our hearts so that we might see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. See, we don't see it until he does that. It's an act of his grace. But when he does, we see his glory in the face of Christ. And we're told over and over again in the scriptures to look to Christ. Look to what he has done. Look to what he has delivered us from. Look to the salvation that he has won. When the shame and the guilt says you can't go back, look to the fact that he paid for it all so that we could walk in relationship with God. We should encourage each other with the truth of God's loving discipline. Warn each other of the dangers of present-day idolatry, going to anything else to get what we need, and being willing to step outside of a relationship of trust and obedience to God in order to get it. And we should share with the unsaved world about the God of the whole earth who is out for His glory and who doesn't share His exalted place with anyone. our first thought is to think that's not a very appealing message. But I will tell you this, that this truth will resonate with who they were created to be. Image bearers. What should you expect when walking away from God? Expect God to love you. To love you. And that love probably is going to look different than anything that you expected. 
might look like discipline. might look like coming to the end of, of, of being able to rely on whatever it is that you think is meeting your need outside of him, but it's love. Let's bow our heads.